This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. Ted Creighton is the artistic director and co-founder of Joy of the People. Ted leads the way in rethinking and delivering player development based on his experienced, dedicated, and innovative soccer career. This episode came about after I'd heard Ted speak with Adam on the Scuffed podcast, and I wanted to follow up with some questions of my own and get to the bottom of how Ted is using his brand of soccer to help kids play and learn more about the sport. I've linked to some of Ted's social media profiles and his website for Joy of the People on 343coaching.com in the write-up section of this podcast. So be sure to go check that out and be sure to check out our sponsor, Bounce Athletics, because if you are looking for high quality and custom training gear, Bounce Athletics has what you need. Specifically, they have a new package deal that includes custom training balls and custom numbered training vests that will help you get through tryouts and get your upcoming season started off the right way. You can order 24 custom training balls and 24 custom numbered training vests for just $6.99. And if you want more, they have more. You can get 48 balls and 48 vests for just $11.99. To make it even better, 343 listeners get an additional 10% discount on all orders. So be sure to go check out Bounce Athletics, and whenever you are ready, you can email info at Bounce Athletics to start the order process. But be sure that you mention 343 so that you receive your additional 10% discount. So once again, that is info at bounceathletics.com to start the order process, and then don't forget to mention 343. If you enjoy this podcast and you want to continue learning from 343, you can accomplish that with our premium membership program. The premium membership program teaches you the proven 343 methodology. It's a simple yet powerful program that doesn't bog you down with unnecessary information and gives you only what you need to become a better coach. When you sign up, you get instant access to videos of real games and real training sessions, which together help you learn how to coach possession soccer. You also get 24-7 online access to eBooks, audio lessons, recorded classroom presentations, on-field clinics, and members-only forums for networking and sharing ideas with other 343 coaches. You can learn more about the benefits of getting your education from 343 by visiting 343coaching.com. All right. That's it for the intro. I hope that you enjoy this episode of the 343 podcast with Ted Creighton. All right. So I want to talk to you about what you've been up to in your neck of the woods. I think it's something pretty special, but I also don't want it to be like the other interview that you conducted with Adam. So I don't want sure. I, I, I don't want people to, to listen to this and, and think that they heard the same exact thing because your interview with Adam is very good and you cover, you know, um, a, a wide variety of topics. You go over kind of the, the overview of the program and, and what you've been up to and kind of the history behind it. But I kind of want to dive a, maybe just a tad bit deeper below the surface and, and see what, what else we can extract from you. Sure. Um, I just, um, I thought the same thing as well. Um, so if you have specific questions or, you know, um, 
if you want to go to a certain place, let me know. Yeah. Well, um, I, I guess we absolutely have to start with an introduction, you know, who you are and then what the program is. Um, mm-hmm. and then, yeah, if, if people want, um, if people want to learn, you know, a little bit more of, of like the overview, I'm going to link to your interview with Adam, um, in the right of okay. this podcast so they can find that there. Um, but let's, let's just start with, with who you are and, and, and uh, what you're up to and, and where, and where you're, where you're doing it at. Okay, sure. Um, my name is Ted Creighton. Um, longtime coach, player, director of coaching, you know, we, the thing that we all do. Um, uh, from Minneapolis, uh, was born here. Um, fell in love with soccer at 16. Uh, went to USC back when they had a, a team and played my freshman year went back my sophomore year and they had a new coach Sharif Zahn who was kind of a I think he's Paul Caligiuri told me he's a he's an LA big time but didn't like Sharif and Sharif didn't like me and transferred to Trinity College kept playing played at a, at a pretty high level and uh, later went into coaching um Became a director of coaching, grew a big club, the biggest club in Minnesota, and uh, you know had all my friends helping me coach. And as we were watching kids develop within that club and around Minnesota, we could see that um, kids needed to play more um, to to develop a higher level of sort of uh, interpretive skills. And we tried to set up. Um, free play uh, numerous times within clubs. Um, Rafi Tanashan, who is on my board of directors and currently lives in Las Vegas, he, we coached together and he encouraged me to like take these ideas and keep going further. So him and I started sort of the, this first idea of, <clears throat> we took a group of 11 year olds from this club and we said um, all winter long, they're going to have no coaching. Uh, they're just going to play 3v3 in this really cool downstairs and basement re- old wrestling gym that we had. And um, we sort of watched it, and that was sort of the first um, um, ideas came to us uh, as we watched this sort of first iteration of free play. And we saw where we were making mistakes and we saw what it was teaching. We didn't really know what we had on our hands, but the kids loved it and they seemed to be doing really well. When we tried to institute that with the entire club, it really didn't work out. And we knew that um, if we wanted to see something like this happen, we had to do it. We had to kind of go off on our own. So a group of friends of mine and I, we, uh, including Rafi, we uh, set up Joy of the People, a nonprofit dedicated to free play. We partnered with the city of St. Paul to take over a rec center as kind of a laboratory, a ground zero of play to see what would happen. And that was about uh, nine years ago. And since then, we've just been running programs and, and giving away free, uh, free time for kids just to get together and play in all different kinds of environments. And it's been a really uh, cool learning experience along the way we've sort of seen that free play is really really important more important than we thought and that not very many people around the world are kind of looking into it at that point we 
we set out to become kind of a, a leader in the understanding, delivery, execution of free play and how it helps kids. Ted, one of the things I've noticed about you is that you're very, um, I guess the first thing that sounds like you're very well-spoken um, and you mentioned you went to USC. I'm just curious what your what your background is because you seem to be very interested in, you know, the the study of of all of this and mm-hmm. and you know the behaviors and the science side of it. So I'm curious if you have a background in in, in anything of that sort and if that's well, what's driving a lot of the research or anything that you're doing. I don't know really know what's driving it, um, but yeah, I agree with you that I'm. I think I drive people nuts and oh, here comes Ted. We're going to be talking about free play again. The other day I took over a dinner party um, to talk, you know, was it Gretzky that changed? Uh, Was Gretzky talented or was he needed to change the environment of ice hockey and save it? But the, um, I didn't start playing soccer. I played all sports, all sports in a playground setting. Uh, I lettered in five sports. Uh, I was, given scholarships in uh, soccer and tennis. I uh, was asked to um, um, try out for a junior professional hockey team. So I'm a good all-around athlete. Um, In hockey, I totally free play. I never was instructed in anything until high school senior when I went out for hockey and made the team. Then I played in college. Uh, for soccer, I started at 16, and I had played no free play in soccer, and I had to kind of hand deliver myself how to play. I had to like, you know, copy people and learn from that. And I think um, as I grew in soccer, and I think I peaked way late. I, you know, I have some funny stories, but I don't really want to go into. It. But but the. Um, I kept trying to learn at soccer. So I would study um, physical um, uh, sports science, the best way to train to, to really apply for myself. And it allowed me to play, you know, well, I played first division until I was 55 in Minnesota. The, um, it allowed me to play for a very long time. And, and, and I used that same sort of like drive in, and kind of trying to figure out how to develop um, soccer players, how to develop good kids uh, when I was with the club. So I don't really know what drives it, but I do know that there's like an, you know, um, that that um, I'm continually in the search for. And and we don't have all the answers. We we want to say that all the time. We we we're just searching, but we do know that we are we've made some really big strides and we want to help people with that. There's a, there's an article that, that Gary Kleiman wrote. Um, I don't know how many years ago now, maybe, maybe not that long ago, maybe last year, the year before. And, and he broke down player development into five major components. And so the five components that he broke it down into were the household or the, the influence that the household has on a, on a player, um, a player's, uh, you know, d- desire or, or the amount that they play on their own, um, pickup games, and then the structured club training influence, and then also you know, personal training. So it was like those five things that he had identified as being part of like the total player development. And what you've mentioned already in this interview and that what you 
something you mentioned in the interview with Adam multiple times was you didn't realize going into your project how important this free play or unstructured play or pickup type play. I don't know how, exactly how to describe it to, to do it justice, but you didn't realize how important that was. And so I'm curious if, if, if you've kind of like zoomed out and tried to put the pieces together, like, you know, you need 20% of this and 20% of that and mm-hmm. 15% of that, or if it, if it, if that's not really the right way to approach it. We have zoomed out. We have tried to, um, I guess, uh, sort of piece it together. Um, I guess funny story and, in, in uh, stop me if I've already said this one with Adam, I don't think I did, but in 1999 or eight, um, I was in Sweden, Malmo, with this one of my teams that were playing in the Gothia Cup or the Dana Cup, and we had spent we got to spend a week with Malmo Youth Academy training, and I talked the Youth Academy guy into like letting four of our players train with them all week, and I went um, I quickly realized that I I couldn't pick four players, so so what we did was we every day four players. Uh, four of our players got a different turn of playing. So each player got one try to, to play with the Malmo um, team. Anyways, they started talking to me about this thing called 10,000 hours. I go, 10,000 hours? Yes, 10,000 hours. That's how players are developed. They practice more than others. And we have a friend, um, Anders Eriksson, who's in the United States uh, at Florida State, who happens to be a Malmo fan. So he called us up and he said, hey, guys, players are made, not born and they're putting in more hours. And I'm like, what? Players are, aren't are born? They're not talented? You know, and and they pointed at a guy, and they said, this guy's put in more hours than the others. He's going to be, a you know, an amazing player. And I'm like, looking at this guy, he was tall, long hair, and when he ran, his knees knocked together. And uh, I said to myself, well, this... 10,000 hour stuff. This has got to be crazy because that player's never going to make it. Well, that player turned out to be Zlatan Ibrahimovic, um, who was training at the time at Malmo. It was a 17. And um, when I started to see him uh, do stuff at Ajax, and I, I was like, oh my God, this 10,000 hour theory must be correct. So I started to to look into this thing. And so very early on with, with Blackhawks, we were into this 10,000 hours, like train more, play more. And then, so we came up with an assessment program. We were like, we were, we were blanketing kids with more and more education. And then, but when I thought about Brazil and when I thought about how kids developed there, they weren't really working at it so much. They were playing at it. And perhaps play hours have uh, an important part of the sort of whole complex um, piecing together of great players. And as the more and more we looked into it, the more we saw that, yes, they put in lots of hours, but as kids, those hours were in play settings and they were with friends and they were, like Gary said, they were close to home. And they were, um, and then perhaps there's something to that. Then they took us further, and I think I've talked about language acquisition, but we but we were like looking, okay, so if this is true, if there's like play early, learn late. In fact, Michael Jordan said, uh, I didn't have my 
first coach until I was 16. I believe in play early, learn late. And um, you take this further and you look at like um, um, models of learning, like second language learning theory, and they talk about acquisition period before a learning period, acquisition being the fun, the enjoyment, the in and around of beauty of the language, while the learning period is more of the structure, the grammar, the rules, and, excuse me, rules and techniques of the language. And that sort of made sense to us. And so then as we started to piece it together, we started to look, okay, is there an acquisition period in soccer? Um, did the great players go through this acquisition period? where it's not about uh, output, it's about input. And it turns out this sort of play close to home, this sort of play on your own um, is really, it's almost like as you grow up, it starts in your home, I'll agree with that, and it seems to slowly expand out. So the way we say it is, um, the best soccer is closest to home, playing in your basement is better than your backyard, Playing in your backyard is better than your local park. Playing in your local park is better than your local club. Playing in your local club is better than your local travel team, etc. But as you expand, you kind of move out. So, so basically our model is um, play early, learn late. And the question of when play turns into work is sort of up in the air. We, we disagree with this in our, on our board all the time, but... I think the science says around peak height velocity where <clears throat> where um, a boy sort of turns into a man, um, 14, 15, where they start to slow down and it's safer for them to lift weights, their, their uh, prefrontal cortex closes, they're better decision makers, et cetera. So that's kind of the sort of framework of the model that we're kind of promoting. It's interesting because it goes back to like that, you know, the never ending debate of, you know, when is the appropriate time to start teaching tactics and when is the appropriate time to start doing this or that. And um, what I've kind of settled on is there's no absolute right or wrong answers. And what everybody seems to be doing in, in all of those settings is just increasing the number of, or sorry, environments that are that are producing you know high quality players seem to have one thing in common which is you know an, an incredible amount of of soccer like whether it is at the club in a structured environment or the kid is playing at home or the kid is you know having a personal trainer it's just the high quality performers or the high performers are putting in yeah ten thousand hours i don't know if there's an exact number that they're doing but that that's a common theme across across the board it seems like for high performers no doubt you have to put in the time. I think, um, you know, David Epstein, who wrote the book Sport Gene uh, and argues with Malcolm Gladwell uh, a lot about the 10,000 hours, is coming out with a book in May called Range. And I think um, that book sort of dives into sort of the, the general to specific uh, notions. So if you look at retrospectives of of high performers um they all put in um tremendous amounts of play hours as kids um they also have something interesting in common where they 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 overestimate the amount of work that they put in and there's been some study studies showing that that 
it's almost inevitable that high performers will will um, credit the hard work rather than the play. And there's something really to that. And um, I think my best um, story for that is me growing up in the pond hockey rinks of, of Golden Valley, where we had, we we're kind of, our neighborhood was kind of landlocked and we had this one park and that's all we had. So everybody would, you know, would go down to the park on winter days and, and it was hockey, hockey, hockey. And we had, we didn't have boards. So we had to put snowballs on the ice as our goals and whoever was goalie, you know, it was like basically no lifting. So you had to keep that puck on the ice and there was no slap shotting because, or shooting the puck because it would go into the snow and you'd never find it. So we had to like put the puck in at the most incredibly slow methods, which meant we had to like deke the goalie over and over. And um, those skills of that were afforded in that rink, um, you know, tended to help us all um, later in life as we had these kind of like um, homegrown skills that kind of lost track of the question. But, but the, um, um, I think the, the play is so important and yet we don't remember it. Why is that? Because, and this is kind of the big paradox is is when we're doing, they've done studies of, of soccer players where they sprint 15 yards and they're fast. Then they have them run against somebody, an opponent, and they're a little bit faster in that 15 yards. Then they throw a soccer ball out and they're even faster. And why is that? Because when you run in, in soccer, you are doing everything unconsciously. You're following the ball. You're just running. When you're running with a sports trainer, you're doing it consciously. You're thinking about it. Go to that comb back. Go to this comb back. Soccer players are are better when they're not thinking about things. And when we do play, we don't think about performance. We think about enjoyment. We think about fun. And the secret to really good play um, seems to be the environment. The environment needs to be fun, enjoyable. Um, but that environment, John, that environment does include tactics. How am I going to pass around my dad, who's a really good defender, um, to get behind him? Um, if I run at him, uh, he's going to be backing up. If I back up, maybe he comes towards me and I can jump in behind him. So small tactics exist in play as well as, um, you know, when kids are getting more structured coaching, um, High-level tactics and team tactics, tactics and 11 v 11 tactics seem to be, you know, more specific and and do have an importance. But when that importance is, I'm not quite sure. But most people would think it's a little bit later. Ted, one of the questions I wrote down when I was listening to your interview with Adam was: Is is your program supposed to represent street soccer? And I wanted to kind of get your thoughts on maybe the difference between what your program is and what, you know, street soccer, or Pana culture or, or those types of things might, might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, it's meant to represent that time and place of when, when kids are growing up and would play in the streets. Now, as we know, we're, we have, 
monitors there we have adults there we have i'm there and so we know that we can't get all the way along that continuum to street soccer um at the same time um street soccer or street basketball or hockey can have its dark side where it kind of pushes people in and out it's it can be tough it can be easy i think a mistake that we tend the couple mistakes we tend to make with, when we think about street soccer is one, it's all about, um, it can, it, it can slide on a continuum where it's all about show. It's all about, and it's not about functionality. And then the other part is that only when street soccer is live on the razor's edge, um, sort of cutthroat, um, difficult urban, um, toughness is it is it valuable and um i think that there's a time and place for all of that uh but, but i think that healthy environments start with compassion empathy and there's just i think that's sort of our i i don't i've heard people say hey ted you're not going to affect the um the person who runs a, a famous mls club and around me said that ted you're you're uh you're you're you know because we play together the um it'll never work because um my favorite player is luis suarez and luis suarez is willing to bite off someone's uh, ear in order to uh in order to score a goal and well i'm sorry shoulder um <laughs> <laughs> the uh and I said, you know, I just don't buy that. I don't buy that. It has to be. Um, but um, I will tell you that some of, so we, 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 we have done some stuff where we've tried to make it more competitive where we said, cause at the start we thought, you know, com competition is important that the kids need to be mentally tough and compete. And what we have found interestingly is that the kids who, that kids can overcompete at that age where they they try so hard that they're doing everything except kind of playing with skill in order to win a game and so uh we can find those kids kind of fighting with themselves rather than enjoying themselves so i think street soccer does take all parts and we we're the first to admit that we if we are present we're sort of like that experiment that influences the the the, the scientists who because he's president over the petri dish he is influencing the experiment we we understand that and we've even taken you know actions and notions and learned as we've gone to try to like um step back as much as possible hey sit tight we are going to hear a quick message from our sponsor bounce athletics it's a part-time doc i had a budget and you know, we needed training gear every year and it just was getting more and more difficult to find decent, high quality, affordable training balls. That's Zach. He's the co-founder of Bounce Athletics. And as a coach, he was having a hard time finding quality soccer balls at an affordable price. So he started searching for ways to solve that problem for himself and for others. We've been able to experiment with a lot of different textured materials and construction methods. And, and I think we've really got it dialed in to, to where now, you know, with, with our training balls, we're providing super high level 
training balls that have all the modern technology in them for a fraction of the price of global brands. Zach and Bounce Athletics are offering 343 members and listeners 10% off orders of those custom premium soccer balls that he was just talking about. If you are hosting a soccer camp this summer and you want to get 10% off camp balls with free shipping and receive everything by May, just place your order with Bounce Athletics by February 15th. Email info at bounceathletics.com to start the order process and be sure to mention 343 to receive your 10% discount. All right, let's get back to the show. We, uh, a few years ago, tried to, or not tried, we, we did. We, we started like a Friday night program and invited kids to come out and we wanted to kind of couple uh, some structured training with, with free play. And it sounds, it's, it, it sounds, um, you know, very similar to how you described your program. Um, but it was our first, it was our first go at it. And, and what we really wanted to, to see, and we saw it, uh, or we saw ultimately what, what happened with it is we wanted the kids to take the initiative and, and we wanted the kids to be the ones to eventually, you know, put the cones out and start the pickup games on their own. Like, you know, Hey, like when you guys show up, like don't wait for the coaches to say something. And, and that is that, that was one of the most shocking things is that, you know, the kids in Southern California that we were working with were so, it was so ingrained in them to wait for the coaches mm-hmm. to give the instruction before they would do anything at all. And so mm-hmm. asking them to even just form teams, like, uh, what was like, it, it was like a challenge that they had never experienced before. It was really, really eye-opening to to me, especially. But you know, I, I I'm only 31, and I still remember like 15, 20 years ago when we would go play pickup basketball. Like we had no problem forming teams. And so when I when I started to see this, I was like, man, our kids like are they that are, are they already that far removed from from mm-hmm. that type of like pickup culture? They can't even form their own teams at this point. Like they can't even pick teams. I was so discouraged by that and um and and so it it just kind of goes back into what we've said for quite a while and and what we had identified going into into that experience too is that that pickup culture whether it represents street soccer or free play or however you want to label it um it, it is a massive gap that that is in the american player development process like we're like it's just missing like that, mm-hmm. that process is absolutely missing. So go ahead. I, I tell you it sounds like you have to missing. respond. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I tell you where it's not missing. And I think you know this is in the uh, immigrant ethnic communities where, um, where, um, where we really develop, tend to develop kids and we don't really understand it. So what happens is, you have in Minnesota, we have it. I've seen it. These great Hispanic leagues, um, and you'll have you know fifty-year-olds and thirty-year-olds and eighteen and sixteen-year-olds all playing, right? But the little kids are not allowed to play. These fields that they rent are, and the only fields they can get are you know one hundred twenty-five dollars an hour. So little kids are not playing. Uh, only kids are playing, but the moms and the and the and the friends are cooking a barbecue and the kids are all sitting on the sidelines with their own little mini game, you know, uh, playing with each other in sort of 
that a, a game that they formed. I can't even find the goals, but they're they're moving with a the ball. There's three or four of them, and on a team, and they're and there's three or four different games going on of three or four kids, and none of them are playing. But what they are doing is they're looking at the field, and they're saying, "My dad's out there playing, and that's what I'm that's what I'm going to do when I grow up." In the American system, the um, kids are dressed up in uniforms. They're they're marched on t- to the to the field, World Cup style, and they look over at their parent, you know, drinking a diet Dr Pepper on a lawn chair, and they say, "Hey, that's what I want to do when I grow up." We don't model the correct behavior for our kids, and that's one thing that we've learned. When you have a pickup game, so uh, back to the I pond hockey story when it was 12 years old a guy my buddy's friend pulled up in a station wagon and he said who wants to go to to um golden valley tryouts and so my three best friends hopped in the car and they made the travel team left me on the rink with a bunch of you know seven eight nine year old whippersnappers with these weak ankles that couldn't skate and I'm like, okay, how am I going to whip these guys? And I need to enjoy my hockey, you know? So I help these kids get better. Now, hey, here's how you skate. If you hold your stick like this, you know, remember no lifting. I modeled and taught the, the, these kids the game. And then they got better and better. And then pretty soon I'm enjoying myself playing against these guys. I helped them in a very selfish manner. I wasn't thinking about them. I was thinking about my hockey game. And I shaped the game for me. And at the meantime, those kids saw me and they said, oh, I get it. I see what he's doing. He's He's setting up the game so he can get personal enjoyment out of it. When I'm older, that's what I'm going to do. So we've, we've, this, this cycle has been broken and we need to kind of put it back in. But basically we all need to sort of check ourselves and, and, and sort of, because real learning happens in those, you know, this kind of the science is saying that within those little mini games, that's where the real learning is happening because kids are experimenting, trying things, building real skills and um, and they're doing it in a very low anxiety way that is not focused on uh, performance. It's only focused on enjoyment. And so we haven't modeled systems of enjoyment um, in this country, and we need to sort of get back to that. Ted, I, I, I fully realize I'm, I'm hardly even asking questions. I'm kind of just making statements about, and, about observations and, um, and just kind of get, getting your response. And I'm, I'm going to do it again right here. So maybe this is more like a conversation than an interview at this point. Um, but I, uh, I had a conversation last night with, uh, with a performance analyst, a, a video analyst actually for a, a major league soccer team. And he started talking about the way that, that kids learn. Like there's all kinds of the, the different ways that kids learn and, and seeing somebody do something is one of the most impactful ways to, to break through to a, to a young player. And so he gave the example of a coach demonstrating a move, for example, and, um, and how a player can sometimes interpret that as, Oh, well maybe that's an adult and you know, he's obviously played before, so that's not me. So I can't do that. And, and then he gave the, an, another example of, okay, well what if they see another kid that's their own age doing that? 
and then they, they say, oh, well, that kid's, you know, he's the same size as me and he's my same age. I can definitely do that. And so, you know, finding the different ways, I guess, to break through to a kid is important. But what he what he said or what he was ultimately trying to get to, I think, was like the visualization aspect, like, oh, I see it happening. Now I can do it, too. And so what you mentioned of the player looking back at their their mom or dad sitting in the lawn chair and hey uh, you know i'm going to be like that i'm going to be sitting in a lawn chair drinking a diet dr pepper uh, yeah it kind of makes sense like if the kids aren't seeing you know that the parent or anybody in the home or or anybody on a regular basis executing these things you know soccer related things they're not going to be able to execute them they're not going to be inspired to execute them at, at all but if if you look at the at some of the different cultures uh, where they're constantly seeing this, not only their parents doing it, but their big brothers, their big sisters, their cousins, everybody else is doing it as well. That's that, that makes a massive impact. And one one more thing before I'm, I'm just going to throw it to you and get your reaction is, is this is where I used to I used to argue with Tom Beyer about this on Twitter like five or six years ago. Tom would say, you know, American soccer or America doesn't have this soccer first mentality. And I always say, Tom, absolutely false it exists outside of the, the traditional American soccer system. So the, the Hispanic leagues, the cultural leagues, um, you know, I, I remember growing up going to the Croatian only tournaments that, that, that my dad's Croatian community would, would host two or three times a year. Like that totally existed outside of the development Academy, outside of ECNL, outside of like those like kind of sterile environments. So it absolutely exists here. And, and I like to think that I've changed Tom's mind about that, but I don't know if I have completely, um, or I don't even know if I have at all. So that was my, that was my brain dump, man. I don't know if there's anything in there that you can respond to or not. <laughs> well, when I grew up, I grew up with, you know, um, what you're an American player, which team are you going to play for? Are you Ukrainians? You're going to play for yep. the Polish. Are you going to play for the Germans? Are you going to play for, um, and we had a, a friend, who and I, I went and played for the the English team, and then uh, yeah, stayed mostly with them. But then a friend had a, had a pretty genius idea. He said, "No, I'm going to put a team together of players from around the um, the best players." Well, you can't do that. You can't you know pick a Ukrainian here. Uh, a Mexican American there, uh, Iranian here. And so he did, and he called it, you know, the, he, he called it the internationals and nobody thought it would work. It was like so far ahead of its time, but each of those, there was, I do agree that there, that the culture or the environment is everything. And that, um, and that the language is soccer and that, that, um, that we can all speak it together. Um, but we, you know, I think our country is a little bit, I agree though with Tom in a little bit is that we're sort of divided in that culture. Uh, some people, um, nobody really owns it. It's not, doesn't belong to anybody. We, we, we all need to be giving back to it. We all need to be, um, doing our very best. And I think most people are, when we have disagreements, we, we we tend to think the other one is is completely wrong. I think everybody has the right idea or the right motivation, but it, in the end, it's not all always equal. Uh, absolutely, so if that makes any sense. No, oh, absolutely, and and it and it's just uh, 
I, I think it's just looking at it from from all angles, and a lot of people will only, or a lot of people tend to only look at it from their angle. And when you when you kind of you have to zoom out, and I, I'm guilty of this one one thousand percent, where you know I I kind of stay in my corner and I and I kind of just fight off all the attacks, just you know from my corner. But you know I I do zoom out from from time to time and, and give it some critical thought, and and that's why I actually I. I wrote down that question that I asked you earlier about, you know, is your program trying to represent street soccer? Because that's, you know, that's a hot, I think that's kind of like a hot, a hot, um, ticket right now. Like people are trying to create street soccer programs and cash in on, on creating programs that represent that street Mm -hmm. soccer culture. And so, you know, it's, it's somebody from, from one, from one environment trying to capitalize on what, another culture has built but mm-hmm. um you know changing it in a way that you know really still represents like the sterile da mm-hmm. type environment so when i wrote down that question that that's where my mind was but i didn't i, I wasn't trying to imply that that's what you have done so i wanted to make sure i clarified that too no that that's fine i think we um uh when we started uh, Um, enjoy the people we kind of use the word free play and we're using it on a scientific basis of Cote having free play at one end of the continuum and deliberate practice on the other and deliberate practice is tough difficult it's important uh, but it comes in later in life and free play is important and it comes in early in life and generally no matter what kids are going to play can we create more opportunities for them to play locally there is a um so we've, I think we've greatly, greatly, greatly influenced um, Minneapolis, greatly. That's badass. Um, the um, and he, and Rafi constantly tells me, Ted, um, uh, a prophet is never. I don't see myself a prophet. He's he said this. Now a prophet is never um, loved in his in his own hometown. I've heard that. The the. Uh, there's a local billionaire who owns these athletic um, companies, um, fitness companies, and he bought the Vikings facility, the old Vikings facilities, giant facility. Um, it's got to be a $20 million purchase. And um, now he's running it full time and they have, I don't know, 20 mini uh, beautiful, gorgeous uh, turf fields all dedicated to free play soccer, 100%. And um, we see it as sort of an affirmation of what we're, it's like the same thing. It's like 10 minute games, music, um, um, you know, rotating teams, um, you know, trying to replicate street soccer. You know, so they're charging money for it. So it's not free. And even though we have, you know, full disclosure, we have, free time where all kids are invited and can play and all you have to do is set up is sign a waiver but we also pay for that with paid programming where we bring in coaches and we do a little bit more structured um uh, things for kids that we feel need it so or want it so that's kind of how we pay for the free play but we also do a lot of research and and do donations and, and those kind of things. But, but we've had a really think 
uh, everybody understands the word free play and, and in Minnesota, at least it's become, it's sort of changed the ethic. People are thinking about, Hey, I got to get my uh, free play time in per week. And, but we have to always remember that if you do it to try to get better, it doesn't really work. You have to do it because it's fun. So, um, that's really important, but, um, yeah, so in a, in a cool way that's, that's happening around here at least. That's super cool, man. Um, at one point during your talk with Adam, you, you said something and, and I think it was actually just, you know, verbatim that you're not doing anything special when it comes to like the free play. Mm-hmm. And, and I, I wanted to ask you what you meant by that. And, and yeah, maybe like not doing anything well, special. So, uh, we, we, we let the kids sort of, uh, drive it. We, we kind of figured out early that, um, older kids are important. Um, they're kind of the trendsetters. And so they, we, we help them with decision-making around the field size, team selection, things like that. The, we realized early that, the surfaces do the teaching so if i'm developing you know very few kids actually develop on grass you know usually it's dirt sand street futsal courts etc um on grass uh kids can like run and kind of force their way forward and if they get trip they fall over they roll they get back up and they keep going so a bigger stronger kid can really do a lot of damage on a small street court or like we have a tennis court uh, that we play futsal on if a kid falls on that it hurts and um so he can't run full speed it sort of takes the athleticism out of it a little bit and he has to rely on guile on cleverness in order to sort of where before he could rely on sort of um innate traits that he had um we we let them choose different balls we and and when I say special, we're not like instructing, the, but the but the growth is happening within the games themselves, and we can kind of see it. And so um, we just allow them to. We'll help them shape the games, and you know, um, if they're doing something that we see is detrimental, like they're getting in too many fights, or or it's getting too competitive, we have to sometimes step in. But basically, we're not. Um, more and more, we're kind of stepping out of the picture too many fights that means that fights happen yeah you know arguments happen things happen um you know friendships happen um in order to um in order to figure things out sometimes we have to fall down um in free play they're experimenting with um tactical and technical and communication and decision making but they're also they're also experimenting with social how much do I compete? You know, what happens if I don't pass to the girl? Um, is she, you know, my team will win. Will, you know, um, but will she, you know, be engaged when she has to play defense? I don't know. All kinds of things. So we see all kinds of mistakes happening. We don't step in and fix those mistakes um, unless we see where, you know, someone's feelings are really, really hurt or, they're creating a, an environment where someone might not return. So um, Magic Johnson, when he grew up in Lansing, Michigan, he tells a story where 
where uh, he loved to play 3v3 basketball. He hated to he hated to um, to practice on his own. He was he was not known for practicing on his own. And what would happen at the local uh, free play courts um, is that there was a lot of fights going on. And um, in order to sort of keep the game going, he had to figure out ways to uh, be nice to everybody to kind of keep them. So, so he learned how to pass. He's probably considered the best passer in NBA history. Passing is really nice when you're playing pickup. Um, it's friendly, right? It's communication. Uh, he learned how to smile. Those two things, you know, his smile is world famous. So his passing, the world's greatest basketball passer, and his world famous smile were two things that were developed in sort of an unstructured play environment. And two things that people wouldn't nor- necessarily think of when they think of basketball or, or the best basketball player, one of the best basketball players in history. Correct. He, he, he you know, he, uh, so Larry Bird, on the other hand, was Mr. Practice, right? Mr. Deliberate Practice. I mean, you shoot a million threes, you know. But when he got into league, he was sort of socially, he was shy. He was, you know, socially he was behind. Socially, Magic Johnson was was very much ahead. As a rookie, he led his team to the NBA title, right? Playing a new position uh, in the seventh game and being, I think he was MVP of, the, of that game or series. The He was... By the time he was in the NBA, he was a social genius, and he still had, I would like to say, he had technical things that he had to work on. He wasn't that great free throw shooter. He wasn't, today he'd be considered a poor three-point shooter. Um, He was about play, and uh, Larry Bird needed to sort of figure out the social end. There's that famous scene where he's waving the towel on the bench, um, where he's sort of like kind of figuring it out how to be a you know uh, a socially engaged teammate. So uh, you know I don't want to put too much work because I've never talked to these two. But my thought <laughs> is that my thought is is that play delivers certain things and practice delivers other things, and that we need to sort of figure out ways to deliver both to to create you know good human beings. On that note, there was a question I thought of earlier, and, and it and it slipped my mind uh, as soon as we we picked up on another subject. But on the topic of offering both, I'm, I'm curious about um, how you guys decided on offering the free play, and then coupling that with a paid program. And and I, I guess I should probably put that in context: is that you know we we tried to use a similar idea because that is what the suburban kind of like DA type environment of our club soccer environment families and and those players expected. Like that's, that's kind of the norm for them is to, you know, to pay for a service and get something in return. And so I think one of our ideas was, Hey, we're going to, you know, offer that. And and that's how we're going to get people in the door. And then we're going to try to, you know, also offer this, you know, the pickup, type environment and, and see what happens. So I'm, I'm curious how you guys went about deciding uh, to offer both. If it was, there's one before the other, if, if it was intentional. The, um, the whole purpose was free play. But when we first started, I, and I've told this story to Adam, so I'm going to, re- you know, I have to repeat it, but basically I was like, um, 
they just handed us the keys to this new rec center in St. Paul. So we had to, you know, pay the bills. And um, I thought there would be hundreds of kids that would come to do my programming, but um, nobody really came. And uh, so we just had a couple kids. And when I rolled out the schedule, uh, my buddy said, hey, you know, where's the free play hours? And I said, well, 7.30 in the morning there, 11.30 at night there. Um, he goes, no, if you believe in free play, you gotta, you got to deliver it. And so, excuse me, the, um, we set about doing free play, and free play was always the most important thing. But, but the business model was uh, we were going to do paid programming. Now, at this point in time, I didn't really know how free play worked, how it delivered players. How we, we all know that free play is important, but nobody really knows quite how it works. I don't know if that makes any sense. So as we watched it go, we saw, wow, this is really working. Um, and, and our paid programming then changed. So the free play that we, we deliver is free to all kids, and all kids come um, from all, a lot of clubs. We watch free play and we see, oh, I see. Um, if we do this or that, or the kids do this or that, like um, this is what they're learning. And this, the free play then informed us how to deliver better programming, uh, programming that was kind of loosely based on free play. I don't know if that makes any sense. But the business model always had to have free uh, the programming pay for free play. So we do a summer camp where we do um, 9 through 12, um, 9 a.m. to 12 is the actual camp where we'll do a scene practice like we'll do goalie wars, a shooting camp where they're just shooting like crazy on each other. And then at 12 o'clock, it's opened up for free play where kids can come in and play. Um, as we've gone along, we've seen that the free play is more important than the than the practice. And what it's taught me is is that no matter how good I am as a coach, I cannot teach better than free play can deliver, not at the young ages. And I think the the model for that, if you go back to this language learning model, um, this, the hypothesis is that when you're in the acquisition period, when you're in this early period, that's where you get more fluent. You get better at things. You improve. And later in the learning portion, that's where you see where you stand, where that monitors your progress. So you have to go back into this low level, low anxiety in order to improve. And then you, you go to this high level to see, oh, this is where I stand. This is what I, uh, this is how I'm doing right now. Um, and yeah, that's basically it. So that's some of the things that we've discovered uh, from free play feedback is feedback is inappropriate. Feedback between kids on the field is totally appropriate. Uh, feedback from coaches is not. Um, telling kids to work on things, their weaknesses, is not appropriate. Um, letting kids understand what they can do and can't do if, from each other is is totally appropriate. Yeah, the the feedback aspect is, is something you're referring back to the interview I recorded last night with the video analyst um he talked a lot about feedback and and a lot of times coaches will 
give feedback after a player does something wrong on the on the field. So like a player, the example he gave was a player misses a shot and the coach tr- tries to correct that during the game. Like, hey, like next time you need to lean forward more and, and doesn't realize that that's kind of doubling down on the negative feedback that the kid has already received mm-hmm. because the feedback of just watching the ball sail over the goal was enough feedback for the kid or for most kids to understand that they did something wrong. You know, they don't, they don't need to be told again in that moment that they, you know, they missed the goal. Um, but what he also highlighted is like, okay, rewind the tape 30 seconds and see what the kid did right in order to get into the spot where he took the shot, because he most likely did two, three, four things right before he took the shot. So if you give him a report card, Hey, out of five things you did four, right? Like that's actually pretty good. So it's not, it's not like, it's not that negative that you, that you missed the shot. So, you know, later on, you know, when you, when you have a meeting with the kid or at halftime or after the game, you can talk about, Hey, like, you know, what could you have done better in order to, you know, to make your shot better in that moment and get a perfect score, something like that. I don't know. The, uh, I'm a big uh, fan of Verhyen and his, his, I think his action model of communication, decision-making execution is, is very similar to a lot of people's models, but, um, his point is execution is the least important, uh, the communication and decision-making that allowed that player to get into that position. Um, there's also communication, execution, decision-making on his backswing on his forswing of the ball that perhaps was a little off. Um, but if we look at one of the mistakes I think we make is we, we, we look at technique as a mountaintop that we want to get to where perfection's on the top of the mountain. So if we look at sort of, and it probably is appropriate um, shooting model. You would take who's the best shooter in the world. Maybe it's Cristiano Ronaldo. Um, he he sits at the top of the pyramid. We're going to do everything along the way. So so traditionally we teach shooting. You know, uh, right foot back, lock the ankle, insta. You know, blah blah blah. One thing at a time. Like you know, um, and we focus on well, if you just do this a little bit better, this a little bit better, this is just execution. Um, the, the, we kind of push up that mountain and then we fall back, we push up that mountain and fall back. But the, but, but the science is kind of saying that Cristiano Ronaldo never shoots the ball the same way twice. The ball's wet, the grass is long, it's turf. Um, it's uh, an Adidas ball, it's a Nike ball. It's rolling backwards, rolling forwards. It's a Champions League game. Whatever it is, it's the, the situations are always different. And therefore, Cristiano Ronaldo is not um, will never be a perfect shooter. He's just good at adapting close to perfection. And so all the – there is no mistakes. There's just kinesthetic noise that goes on. So this kid who put the ball over the bar, that's just kinesthetic noise. And if we allow that kid just to do it without pressure or feedback, he will then um, compartmentalize that and just, okay, next time I'm going to do it you know, a different way. And he can probably listen better if we don't get involved and get in his ear. And it's a, it's a cool way of looking at sort of, of – um, so we don't give negative feed. We don't give feedback on shooting, technical. Um, you know, we see technique as – the least important as problem solving. Although we do see kids copy each other. Um, that, that tells us that we have to be careful of, you know, what we allow to get copied, good things and bad things get copied. 
Um, and so how can we influence more good than, than poor? Um, I think all these things are important in development of the kid. No, absolutely. And it, it always, I, I always get reminded of the type of, um, culture that Brian has developed with his teams and Brian, Brian Kleiman, you know, one of my mentors, I I've had the pleasure of going down and watching his teams train for, for years and years and years. And, um, you know, Brian, of course, like there's times where, where, you know, he's actually corrected the, the feedback or given feedback like that. Like I think all coaches would, would be lying if they said they've never done that. Right. Um, correct. But, but what, including me. Yeah, yeah, no, of course. And, um, but what I always come back to is something that, that Brian has said many, many, many times is like, he, it, that's not the most important part. And you've said it too. The most important part to Brian is, has, and I don't mean to be speaking on his behalf right now, but he said it so many times that I think I have it right. The most important part are, you know, is the kid giving maximum effort and is the kid applying maximum focus? And if those two things exist, you know, and, and they're giving 100% in, the, in those two components, then okay. Like, you know, if they make a mistake, they make a mistake and it's, it, it's not the end of the world. They're going to get another opportunity to take a shot or make a cross or whatever. But as long as they're, as long as they're giving their 100% and those two, those two components. Okay. No problem. Now, if not, if somebody's giving the 50% focus, you know, if, if, you know, the, the training sessions going on and they're, they're, you know, talking or, you know, picking daisies or whatever, and then they make a mistake. Okay. Well, the, you know, that's a problem. But if the kid was, you know, locked in and giving effort, okay, yep, that, mm-hmm. I, I can't argue with that. I, I can't ask the kid to do anything more than be perfect. You know, I, I agree with that. I think we have to. Um, I think um, Brian's teams, you know, speak for themselves. I've followed three four three. I mean, I'm, um, I've, I've known about three four three for a long time and kind of kept an eye on them because. You know they're doing stuff that was different and new and um, and brave and sometimes you know I disagreed sometimes I agree. I think that when you look at um, our education system, we um, were reminded of this with all the scandals of these uh, people getting to, into schools with poor test grades and you know faking that they're soccer players at USC. It just breaks my heart. But, but in our education system, we, we tend to um, put grit, hard work, effort early on where um, perhaps play exp- exploration and uh, imagination, or at least separating those two becomes important. Um, we have to be careful about asking kids to work too hard too soon. And I think um, when we work hard and when we place effort, we're in the learning phase, which shows us how much, yes, I'm able to handle this. I can do this. Um, Or it's telling us, no, I need to go back and work for it. I take the SAT test. I don't get a good enough score. I need to go back and sort of work on my stuff before I can get a high enough score to get into school. So the we have to remember that the the learning and the the learning is sort of the is a snapshot of where we are, and that we have to create open, uh, f- free uh, environments in order to sort of improve. That's what the science is saying, and so um, 
And again, both are important. I don't want to to say that one's more important than the other, but that's kind of our model that we're looking at. No, and it just, and it just goes to it, it goes back to I think what I mentioned earlier is that there's so many different ways to do something, and 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 I don't think that there's one absolute way that it, that it, you know that is absolutely right, and and each environment is going to be you know different, um, but but. I think uh, one of the things that I that I've noticed over the course of I don't know 150 or 160 interviews now is that um, the the most important thing is for you to absolutely believe in what you're what you're doing and what you're teaching and and you know, that that as a as a coach can be one of the most important things and, and if you're not sure what you're doing as a coach if, if if you're you know flipping between one thing and the next thing and this other thing and then something else comes up that looks kind of cool so you try that that's probably one of the worst approaches that you could ever have when it comes to leading a group of, of players but if you if you believe in something and, and you stick with that over the course of years and years and years or you know many many repetitions um, that seems to be a, a common a common theme in, in proper development as well depending not not dependent on on the actual methods being used which i don't know if that's true or not true it's just an observation that i've had yeah i mean conviction is and uh, belief in what you're doing is is really important what we our goal is to sort of grow free play and 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 help i think most uh coaches i think agree with us in that they understand that free play is important and they but they struggle with how do i implement it how can i get involved um do i just send kids to lifetime fitness to pay 30 dollars a month to get games in will that work um yeah and it's a difficult nut to crack because it can't be transactional like and and that's where a lot of parents, I think, struggle. I'm paying Coach X to train my kid. Why is he sitting back? He's not even in the same room. He's mm-hmm. allowing the kids to pick the teams. Mm-hmm. He's allowing. So we realize that this is a parent education problem. And I think this is not just soccer. This is all sports that are struggling with this. Um, soccer is just the first one because it's the most common language. Uh, but rugby is 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 struggling with this. In Brazil, they're worried big time about their um, about their free play culture. Um, pond hockey in Minnesota is dead. Uh, everybody's in on indoor rinks, and now hockey is boring to watch on TV um, because there's no like the new stuff comes from free play. So, how as coaches, how as leaders in the United States? Um, can we take this information that we've gotten about the study of free play over the last 10 years and help other clubs, organizations, kids, families, uh, municipalities, whatever it is to, to, to use it, to create more enriching lives in kids. Ted, I, I end every interview with the same question and, and what you just said right there could have been a great answer to this question, but I'm going to ask it anyways. And, and if, if you feel like you need to repeat that last, last statement, go right ahead. Um, what do people need to know? Um, the, um, so, so I listened to a couple of your interviews, so I knew this question was coming, <laughs> so I'm cheating. And so this is going to take away from the answer, but I think this is a beautiful answer. Right now. 
And I'll preface it by saying I met this guy at Soccer X in Rio where we interviewed all these players just to figure out. And we, we said, I said, Paul Breitner, you know, we're, you know, small um, nonprofit, Minnesota, close to Canada, United States. And we've, we've, um, we started this organization that's built around free play. And we want to know, I mean, did you play as a kid? Were you like, he said, he goes in Germany, uh, there's no such thing in Germany. We just want to, and, and, and it was funny because all these Brazilian reporters were behind me with microphones. They're st- sitting microphones in this guy's face and in my face. He goes in Germany. We just want to win. We just want to win. There's no play. There's no play. It's so from the very first time since you're three years old, you just want to win. And he goes, the joy of the people. Nice name. <laughs> nice name. But later in an interview, he said, he said, Paul Brighton, the same guy, he goes, there's no better way to learn everything for your life than in football. And I think as coaches, um, as directors, um, as leaders, uh, uh, we have to take the lead on this, but we also have to um, remember the joy that we're delivering to all these kids and families and that that when the kids look back on it, they're all going to look back on all of our work and say, wow, that was the best thing ever. So it's such a great sport. It's such a beautiful um, notion, play, learning, growing together, that I think we all have to keep that in mind at all times. Beautiful answer. Thank you. Um, where can people find more about Joy for the People and more, more about you and connect with, with everything that you guys are doing in Minnesota? So, um, joy of the people, it's uh, www.joyofthepeople.org. Um, you can follow me on Twitter at joy of the people. Um, yeah, you can reach out to me in emails. We, we get a lot of, um, I'm sure this will get, get a lot of questions, but we're happy to answer emails and phone calls and we, we do a lot of stuff and we, we just want to help where we can. That is two interviews in a row where people have welcomed phone calls and you guys, you're, you're brave people. (laughs) (laughs) Um, all right, Ted, it was, it was great talking to you, man. I'd love to, I'd love to catch up and, and you shared an article with me the other day online. Feel free to, you know, keep, keep firing those my way. And, and I, I I love reading the stuff that you put out. So. All right. Thanks a lot, man. Thanks. Great talking to you, John. All right. We'll talk to you later. All right. Bye. See ya. All right. Thank you for listening to another episode of the 343 podcast. And a big thank you to our sponsor, Bounce Athletics. I also want to leave you with one note from one of our members of the 343 coaching education program. His name is Thomas, and he's been a member for quite a while. And this is what he had to say. If you want to play insanely good with your team and start to understand the possession and positional game, this will give you a head start. I have tried the material on three ordinary teams, and after a year, they totally dominate the local teams. After two years, they are among the best in the region. The program 343 offers is not a complicated curriculum. It's actually simpler than you might think. But instead of more, you have to go deep in every detail. Thomas, thank you so much for that beautiful review, and I hope that everybody else finds that valuable. 
If you want more information about the 343 Coaching Education Program, the program that helps to support and fund this podcast, you can visit 343coaching.com. All right, we'll catch you guys next time here on the podcast. Thank you so much for listening. 